This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Chris McCarty. And I'm Robbie Greenfield. And this is the Extra Time Podcast. The big story, I suppose, was the big game of the week, Chris, in the Premier League. Manchester City, they've often had success at Stamford Bridge and they were on song. They were. I've been watching Manchester City quite a lot over the festive period and it's been strange to see them so subdued in a front little, of goal. A little laborious. Obviously missing Aguero, missing some of their attackers and, and uh, Raheem Sterling and, and Kevin De Bruyne and Jesus has been in and out of the side but they've... They've actually had to rely on Ilki Gundogan to score quite a lot of their goals and, and, uh, and he got on the score sheet last night. But he that did. was easily their most impressive performance of the season. And oh. Obviously, they're hitting the ground running at just the right time in the new year. Yeah, certainly that 45 minutes was as good as I've seen from any team in a good, in a good few months, certainly. It was as good as I've seen Man City since the halcyon days of, of that pep all-conquering side of, of a couple of seasons back. They, they were exceptional last night that is undoubtedly the best half of football that any team has produced in the Premier League and I include Spurs in their demolition of, of Man United at Old Trafford just touch and move one and two touch players taking it on the half turn Kevin De Bruyne running a mock Phil Foden looking as good as he was and listen Chelsea weren't exactly at the races but I, I like to think or at least having watched the game last night that was in a large part due to Man City and just how much they were at it last night of course their match with Everton it had been postponed due to an outbreak of, of coronavirus amongst some of the Man City squad, so they had extra days to prepare for it. But I think it was more than that. I think Pep and, and his coaching staff got the players at it. It's one of those nights where everything clicks, and they were so good. They were 3-0 up at half-time at Stamford Bridge. It could have been 4 or 5. Phil Foden had a header that he should have done better with. It was just men against boys, and I was, I was blown away. I think I actually jumped on Twitter to, to, to voice that, that... When City and that, when City are in that kind of mood, yeah, Liverpool can live with them. Liverpool are a bit different, a little bit more direct. But when City fancy it like that, they are an absolute joy to watch. A well, joy, it, it, yeah, sure. But it's more sporadic these days than yeah. It, I mean, that, in the season where they hit a hundred points, yeah, that's the key. That was, they were doing that week yeah, in week out. That was the norm. We we saw them demolish Burnley a few weeks back, didn't we? Before Christmas, uh, I mean, Burnley weren't up to much that day. But that's the the the. I guess the task, that is the aim and that has got to be the mission of Pep to, to get that types of performances more consistently. It is difficult to do because last night in that opening 45 minutes save for one or two little missteps, they were bang at it every single They were. Time. Without Aguero though as a regular focal point in attack, they will always probably fail to, to hit those goal numbers that they were hitting when they seemingly were scoring four or five goals every match, it was yeah. it was crazy a couple of seasons ago. There was a real fluidity, and it's, it is perplexing. Bernardo Silva, uh, his kind of marginalisation in, in the last few months, he's been on the bench more often than, than starting. He was reinstated last night. You had Sterling, Foden and De Bruyne. That was the fluid front four with Gundogan and Rodri uh, in the middle of the park. And Chelsea, they were just bedazzled by the football, the, the one-two touch. Some of the moves down the left with Zinchenko, with De Bruyne pulling the strings. Uh, it was as good, as I say, a really, really good performance last night. De Bruyne threw the legs for Phil Foden second. It was just a thing of beauty. And Chelsea just couldn't live with them. Mm. Kovacic, Kante okay. and Mason Mount were just steamrolled. So let's look at Chelsea and, and take a pragmatic view of this. The signings that they've made, Lampard has, has gone on record to say it will take time. He often points to Jurgen Klopp's first season 
as uh, as Liverpool boss and the changes that they made and it didn't happen overnight that Liverpool became a force in the Premier League it took a couple of seasons for them to hit their straps and if you look at the signings that they've made and the big money that they've spent on Kai Havertz and Timo Werner and Hakim Ziyech and all those guys is it apparent that they've actually spent poorly yet or is it too soon Timo Werner yeah I know is that's a mystery to me because everyone thought that he would be potent in the Premier League. And, and they thought I, he was the perfect style. I like him. I like him a lot, Timo. No goals in nine, though. And that pressure is mounting. He was hooked at Arsenal, wasn't he, at half-time? And, and Frank had to come out and, and front up on that decision. Listen, I think it's always very difficult. I'm always a little reluctant to stick the boot in. I could sit here and say, oh, the worst signing ever. And Kai Havertz is... I'm not going to do that because that's just... That's another entity that I shall not name. You've got to does look Kai at- Havertz look just? I know, I know you don't want to do it, but does he look absurdly overpriced at eighty nine odd million or whatever they call? Right, right now he does, but you've got your your scouting staff and and you with your hunch of a football player have looked at him and think right, there is a player there. And having watched him in the Bundesliga, I've no doubt he is a quality operator. He's, a, he's still 21 years of age. He's new to the country, new city, new club. I always say this, and I've referenced this on the show before, Robert Pires, Thierry Henry, Nemanja Vidic, Patrice Evra, to name four. They are players that took anywhere between six and a full, six months to a full 12 months to really settle and ingrain themselves in the new culture, new league. So it's... Again, that's why I'm, I'm reticent to stick the boot in. I think They're going to need time. What we're obviously seeing now is we're now living in a market, and it's changed because obviously post post coronavirus there hasn't been that level of money spent well, on these it. individuals. But you, we're now that market, which is completely unsustainable and unsupportable. You were paying ninety million for a player with potential yeah. who might or might not work. That's you were paying area. ninety yeah. million. On a punt, well, 70, basically. 72 million with the add-ons. It could total 89 million. Uh, if you're talking about Kai Havertz, you're absolutely right. That's where the pressure comes. Due to the circumstances, and the Chelsea fans might point out, well, hold on a sec. We still had banked the money for Eden Hazard. We weren't able to spend that money that we banked from his sale to Real Madrid because we had a transfer ban. So I get that. But ultimately, you're right. The circumstances have ensured that, well, wait a minute, we did spend massive money. As a Chelsea fan... As Frank Lampard, we fair to expect a little bit more at this juncture. Yeah, we appreciate you need time to settle in, but we wanted a little bit more. And, and listen, Kai's going to front up to that. I think also Frank, you know, I think the style, it's not really got the best out of him. He's been stationed on the right. He hasn't started the last four matches, which is, is a big statement in itself. When you spend that level of cash on a player, you want him to get up to speed quickly. And, and the discernible style that, that Chelsea are trying to to play under Frank how would you describe it because I, I gotta I gotta admit it doesn't really seem to no it doesn't. seems a bit reactive and I don't really if someone said to me I could do a better job of explaining how Liverpool or Manchester City play versus how Chelsea play no I think there is there's definitely a method there Rob the, the obviously the, the two fullbacks you watch anytime you watch Chelsea Reese James it was Cesar Aspilicueta the other night but Reese James and Ben Chilwell they're they're your real width comes from the fullbacks. And Gulo Kante sitting in, he's your little engine, he's your, your your enforcer in there. Mason Mount, who Frank's a big fan of, I think Frank sees a lot of himself in Mason Mount. I think he's a tidy footballer. I know Chelsea fans have, have used him as a bit of a kind of uh, the, the poster boy of what's gone wrong a little bit recently. And then the two wingers, whether it be ZH, whether it be Pulisic, Callum Hudson-Odoi, uh, Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, he likes them to come in. He likes them to link up with his big man, whether it be Tammy Abraham or Olivier Giroud. It's, it's pretty clear to me what he wants 
from the structure of his team. I actually think they play some decent stuff when they're at it. I just think, though, Olivier Giroud and Tammy Abraham, not of the quality required. Timo Werner, is he a wide forward? I have my doubts. I see him more as better in a two or through the middle as much as he was starved. I think what I'm saying is Chelsea always had, even though they change managers so often, they always had a pretty clear identity as a team. They were not Manchester City. They were not passing triangles around players. They were quite direct. They were physical. They're not that now. No, they weren't that now. What I'm saying is, of course, but what I'm saying is when they were successful... They always had a similar kind of style. It varied, obviously, manager to manager, but they were still a Chelsea that you could identify yeah, that's, with. That's done. That's gone, that's gone, and they are now kind of at sea a well, little bit. I don't think you need to be wedded. I don't think Chelsea need to return to that to be successful. Ultimately, I think a more expansive game, a more prettier game, to use your analogy, the more passing triangles can still work. You look at that squad, and on paper, Chelsea's squad is, is as good... I mean, when we look at the squads... I actually think Chelsea's squad may, you'd make a good case to say it's the best squad in the Premier League. Honestly. Well, in that case, honestly, there's could, massive pressure then and for and obvious that's reasons. Where, that's where the pressure is coming in. And listen, despite the fact he's got a great relationship with Roman Abramovich, despite the fact he is Chelsea's all-time leading goal scorer, he is a legend. That will never change at that football club. Two monster league games coming up. Forget yeah, the FA Cup. The conversation that will be had with him will be surely, listen, Frank. Yeah. You know, given the you're fact, a legend, but enough's enough. Thomas Tuchel's out of a job. I think he fits in brilliantly there. Max Allegri, Bookmakers, Brendan Rogers, wow, favourite. Yeah, As Roy Keane said, it's in the club's DNA to fire managers. Tonight. It's going against their DNA to stick with Frank, but equally, Frank has done so much. So you've got, you can imagine right now, Roman Abramovich is is probably wrestling with that. This is extra time. Let's turn our attention, if we can, to the world of tennis. Just look ahead to the year and maybe try and tackle some key questions Correct. coming out of that sport. Yeah, exactly that. So tennis has got a well a raft of big events in early on in the calendar. Yeah, it certainly does. And uh, again, I've had a lot of messages on this. Uh, I think the first port of call is to stay locally if we can. The Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championship, anyone that follows their tennis closely will know that obviously you've got the ATP Cup down in, in Oz. You then follow that up with the Australian Open. And then the big one after that that is over here in Dubai, traditionally held between mid-Feb through to the back end of February. They have the Women's Week first, then that's followed by the men. Roger Federer's won it eight times. His 100th title came Mm. here in Dubai. Now, because of the rescheduling of the Australian Open, again, if you've missed it, it has been moved now into February. It kicks off February 8th through to February 21st. So traditionally, it's actually eating into the first week of the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships. The good news is we've got confirmation that ATP week, the men's week of the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championship. It's been moved into March. It takes place March 15th through to the 20th. I've done a bit of digging. There seems to be a confidence from one or two that I've spoken to that the ladies will come here. That that will start the week. I think that will kick off on March the 9th, 8th, I think it is. March 8th through to the 13th or 14th. And we're waiting confirmation on that. And I do expect that to happen at the end of this week. So that's the tennis coming here. In terms of what we can expect this year, well, the big question for me, Robin, and in fact, I say the big question for me, you actually asked this, and I found myself nodding along to it, is 2021, and we said it in 2020, I'm sure we said it in 2019, I definitely know we said it in 2018, is this year the year of the upstarts? Well, I think ultimately the acid test is, because this will happen eventually, Mm -hmm. does the field win more Grand Slams than the big three this year. 
There's four Grand Slams, okay? Does the big three, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic... Still monopolise. Do they win more than two of those? Is it an even split or does the field win the majority of the Grand Slams this year? I will leave you with that thought okay. and give you a chance to have a think of that because, you know, Daniel Medvedev, Dominic Team, of course, US Open champions. Zverev is, is improving all the time. Andre Rublev, Alex Di Manur, Yannick Sinner is a young, a young 18-year-old player who has impressed, it's fair to say, and maybe it's too soon for him to break mm-hmm. through on the Grand Slam stage. But surely... Um, you know, with the likes of Nadal and, and even Djokovic now getting well into their 30s now, it's going to be harder and harder for them to stay where they are. But that's the big question. Absolutely. Who wins more Grand Slams this year, the field or the big three? I am going to disgust you, I think, with my answer. I know what you're going to say. It's going to be two apiece. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be two apiece. I know what you're going to say. Uh, you are going to say that the big three will continue to monopolise Wimbledon and the French Open. Djokovic and Nadal, respectively. Potentially. And the, the other two will be up for grabs. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. And again, with the with what's being put in place down there in Melbourne, you know, this is stringent lockdown kind of protocols, if you will, for that two mm. weeks. Given the fact that it's later in the year as well, not in January, it's moved to February now, weather a little bit different. I just think didn't, didn't help. Didn't hurt Rafa's chances at no. It didn't, it didn't. You know what? It didn't. You're absolutely right on that. And, and uh, it's a hard court. Djokovic will still be. He'll still be there favorite. or thereabouts. Daniel Medvedev coming off the back of his ATP Tour Finals victory. I just think. Well, many people said that Team should have won the final last year in the Australian Open. Had his chances to win he it. Did. Djokovic looked about as vulnerable as he has done at Melbourne um, since I think he was. I think if I'm correct in saying he Nadal, was, the big five-hour final. No, he beat Nadal in that. Oh, that's what I'm saying. But oh, I see. When you think he was well, close to, to being the last time he hasn't won the Australian Open. I think, was it Vavrinka who beat him one year? No, Federer, 2017, beat Nadal. That was the last one that Djokovic didn't win. Right, Djokovic, but I think Djokovic, oh, Djokovic lost. Uh, Djokovic was horribly out of form that year. And he lost. Um, wasn't Tennis Sangren? It might have to? been Tennis Sangren. No. Might, anyway, we need to, to double-check that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I would still say Wimbledon, for me, is locked up for one of the big three, probably Djokovic. It would be a dream if Federer came back and won a final Wimbledon title. Hyung Chung. That's who beat him. Chung. You're absolutely right. Yeah, well done. You're absolutely right. I was just looking at you zoning out. I don't see a Medvedev, a team, a Zverev, a Rublev, a Dimonor winning Wimbledon. Just don't see it. Not going to happen. So, uh, they're not proficient enough on grass. Let's be honest. Djokovic is so superior on that surface right now. Does Roger come back? But he's the one. It's Djokovic or Federer for, uh, for uh, Wimbledon. Nadal, I always or say, every single year. Nah, team's never done no, Wimbledon. Rafa or, team. Rafa or team for the French. Rafa or team or for Djoko. the French or Jocko. So again, you've probably got to say that Wimbledon and the French, for me, I'd always go big three there. And then the two that are up for grabs, I think, are the Australian. Because of, normally uh, you'd go Novak. He's won it eight times, yeah. for goodness sake. But yeah. just given the fact that there has been this lengthy layoff means that there is a little bit of a question mark there. And then the US Open, you just never know how the year has progressed. You would always say, hmm, that's one that is potentially there for your Medvedevs, your teams. Your I just think that's a, that's a much more, as illustrated... This last year now, um, I know Djokovic was disqualified and, and may there may have been there or thereabouts at the end. I'm sure he would have been, but it's a much more even playing field that one now. Medvedev plays well there, team plays well there. Zverev got to the final. It's just yeah, that one, especially if it still remains behind closed doors. We'll Correct. see what things are like in September. 
I mean, I know American events and sports events in the US have been welcoming in quite a few fans. <laughs> yeah, they have. There just seems to be, there seems to just be a, mm-hmm. an outright denial. Bit of news coming out of tennis in the last few hours. Djokovic and Nadal, they will head the field at next month's ATP Cup, just as they did last year when they actually met Spain and Serbia in the final. I thought it was a great event. Yeah, yeah, compared to say the Labour Cup, which is a bit of contrived, a little bit, and just there's a bit of an awkwardness about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the ATP Cup was a really good, good, good way to kick off uh, the year, a really good sort of shift from the Davis Cup, yeah. which kind of a lot of people had issues with yeah, the scheduling of yeah. it and that kind of thing. Um, although it is weird that although tennis the has... Hopman Cup, uh, I quite like the Hopman Cup as well, but. I mean, you can't have it all. The schedule's there. And, and listen, it was, though, I think, universally seen as, as a success, the ATP Cup last year. And it's back again. Uh, Djokovic and Nadal, of course, they've stuck their hands up for it because they've got to get down to Australia. They've got to quarantine. And then they've got to get on with things. They're, they're looking to fine-tune ahead of that delayed start to the Australian Open. So how do you kind of see the, the, the world of... Let's go both for men's and women's tennis playing out in the next 12 months. Is it? Is it... <laughs> It's not going to be smooth. <laughs> I'm stating the obvious, but no, it's not going to be. I think there's going to be a, a lot of issues because by the nature of it, Rob, it's global. Does Wimbledon happen this year? <sighs> right now, you've got to say no. As things stand today, with what's going on over there, you say no. I mean, when's Wimbledon traditionally? July? Yeah, it'll be... Okay, they pushed maybe, it back. I'm being, maybe I'm being a bit scaremongering. It used to be last week of June, first week of July, but they've actually pushed it back to the first two weeks of July. Okay, so... But, you know, they, they made the announcement, I believe... Um, Very early on, end they, of March, start Yeah, they, they, were, they were one of the first yeah. to say, look, we're, we're not happening. Yeah, Wimbledon and the Open Championship last year came out early, and it's because there is such a small window to have that tournament. Mm-hmm. The, the summer months, weather, yeah. the, the daylight hours, mm-hmm. the weather, everything, the, getting the courts ready so that they can actually sustain two weeks of, of intense tennis across multiple competitions and both the men's and women's game. I mean, it's not, not easy. We've actually been in conversation with uh, the head groundsman at Wimbledon. And he, it's, it's a real science, it's a science getting, those, yeah. getting those courts ready. So, um, okay. Let's be optimistic. Let's assume. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm so sorry. Let's guys. assume Wimbledon happens. I mean, the French Open. You'd assume that that takes place in its normal slot. You, you would assume, but I guess one thing that we can lean on from 2020 is even if it can't slot in in its usual slot, it can be pushed back and it passed off without incident. You know, the, the weather, yeah. etc. It can be shifted if it's shifted if need be. Listen, I think the three majors happen, as you say, America is pretty much not back to business, but there's there's a lot of sport fans, whether it's NFL, whether it's the boxing, as you were remarking off air a few moments ago, Rob, there, there are fans in there. So I've got no real issue with the, the, the US or the French. Wimbledon, given what is going on right now in the UK, and I appreciate July is a long way away, you'd still leave a little question mark on that. And yeah, it's just going to be another, it's another year of flux. For, for tennis because of the nature of it Rob they're flying in places I think a lot of events and if you speak to organisers I think they would all, all admit that it will just be part and parcel of it it will come down to the players there'll be a lot of tournaments that will be devoid of some of its biggest names because I think they will more mm. than ever mm. we always say that the Federer's the elder statesmen and women have cherry picked their event, events I think you see that across the, the entire entire yeah. board 
Okay, let's let's focus in on the women's game if we can. Yeah. We've got Ashley Barty as current world number one. She Simona Halep, who seems to be consistently in the top three in the world rankings. <laughs> yeah. She's just incredibly consistent, is the Romanian. Naomi Osaka, who looks like the best player in the world when, when she's on, but has little lulls, periods where she seems a bit indifferent. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, when she's on her game, for me, she's the best player in the world. For me also. Um, Sophia Kinen, who, who obviously made the final of the French Open. She won down in Australia, so she had an incredible year last year. The uh, the breakout star of last year, Iga Swiatek, who won the French Open in incredible fashion. I mean, thrashing everyone, yeah. basically. She thrashed Halep as well mm-hmm. uh, en route to that final where she beat Sophia Kinen. She's ranked inside the top 20. She's number 17. I suppose the, the number one question going into pretty Serena. much any women's uh, WTA season is, do, does Serena win that elusive 24th Grand Slam. Now, I'm going to set myself up for a fall because you should never write off these legends of the games and what they've done, but I think her chance has gone. I just think now, I think the mystique around Serena's gone. I, I, I think for a long time that a lot of these young women were perhaps beaten mentally before they even stepped on the court mm. with her. I think they've seen what Naomi Osaka's done to her, they've seen what a litany of players have done to her. And, you know, over- Here's the thing about her. She used to be the most powerful player by far and that would and she had incredible game management and that would make up for probably her weakest area which is her mobility around the court right now there are you could name 10 players that hit the ball as hard as she does and they are more mobile as well and ultimately she's actually she's not she's actually getting outplayed in the latter stages of, of big yeah, tournaments. Yeah, I mean, she, she, uh, from every match that I've seen, I've watched Serena a lot. E- even in the finals that she's reached, she's had pockets where it's the dominant Serena of old. But And again, Naomi Osaka has laid the, the path, if you will, for the other ladies because Naomi wasn't covered by her. And, you know, we've, we've gone over old ground there in that US Open where Serena got into the little, the, the little tete-a-tete with the umpire. And I've always said, I believe part of that was fueled by the fact that she feared Naomi, that part of it was to try and throw Naomi Just off frustration game. that she was being outplayed. Correct. Yeah. I think there was definitely part of that in her mind to to try and maybe upset the rhythm that Naomi was in and the fact that Naomi put that to one side and still went out and beat her in that fashion. One of the most impressive wins, genuinely, for me Mm. in the last decade of of men or women's tennis and the way she handled herself there. So Naomi, for me, is still the one. Yes, she's she's had a little bit of growing up to do. She's matured now, I feel, and, and she's more comfortable in her skin as being a poster woman of tennis. And for me... Despite all the names you've, you've you've rattled off there, Rob, I still fancy Naomi to win at least one Grand Slam. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting season actually because I think you've got a lot of talent there. You've got your sort of mainstays who never quite seem to sort of fulfil their potential on the on the sort of Grand Slam stage. Your Pliskovas, your Svitolinas, you know they've been deep but they've not won a Grand Slam tournament. So it's it's very interesting. And then someone like Iga Swiatek comes uh, yeah. on and just just wins one. And it is just worth reminding, and, and you tennis fans will be aware of this already, but perhaps those of you that, that don't really follow much tennis, certainly at this time of the year, uh, event down in Abu Dhabi starts tomorrow, the WTA yeah. Women's Tennis Open. So you've got Garbini Muguruza, right, Sophia yeah. Kinins, the, the, uh, the, the number one seed there. So we'll keep an eye on that. And I'm not sure if any of the TV channels in the UE have had this, but it's down at Zayed, the tennis complex down there. So excited to see that. will be a first glimpse of a lot of those players. This is Extra Time. I want to move on, though. We looked ahead to what the year might have in store 
in the world of tennis. And today, let's turn our attention to the year in golf. And I've written down a few little talking points. <laughs> um, just got a couple. I suppose if you look at the top trend in golf, this time last year, ahead of the Abu Dhabi HSBC Championship, we were fortunate enough to catch up with Brooks Kepka. We were. And Bryson DeChambeau, who's always good value. Now, he had just undergone an off-season where he'd essentially morphed into the Incredible Hulk. Yes. Or the Incredible Bulk. And if you thought that that experiment was very much 2019, well, think again, because he's up the ante has he? this time around. Has he? he has returned to his lab during the off-season. His actual lab. <laughs> yeah, well, he has probably he's got, got an actual science lab. Caught on. Well, if you thought he'd be resting on his laurels after winning the US Open, then think again, because he has recruited into his team a good friend of his, world long drive champion, well worth a follow, this guy Ooh. on Instagram. His name's Kyle Berkshire. He's got incredibly long hair right. his name's carl odd. berkshire his hair goes down to his waist oh, this guy and he hits the ball prodigious prodigious distances now bryson is in action this week on the pj tours tournament of champions in hawaii and listen to this he's been discussing further gains he's made working with kyle listen to this chris i mean this is scary what he's been up to having given up the pursuit of trying to get faster in speed and i uh, was fortunate enough to spend some time with kyle and work with chris Como on some some stuff, both of them, try and get a little bit faster this year. What did you pick up in that in those moments? Oh, can you share? Uh, I mean, I can. I mean, whether it happens this week or not, we'll see. Uh, obviously, the body dependent. But you know, yesterday on the driving range, I, I got it to 211 miles an hour ball speed. Wow. Yeah, 211. So that was that was cool. Doesn't mean I'm going to be there. Um, yesterday on 18, I got one 201 pretty easily. So it just feels easier to move the club faster mm -hmm. uh, this year. My, my, my irons have gone gone up in, in distance quite a bit i mean i was hitting eight iron you know 200 205 yesterday so things things are moving up still it's great i've learned a lot from kyle learned a lot from chris and, and i think there's a lot more to be had is there a number where you want to reach in ball speed mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. if so can you share it yeah i mean if i can if i can ever get it to around 207 to 210 on average with the driver out on tour where it's just kind of where I'm at, then at that point I'll probably be like, okay, that's good enough. Um, you know, that's that's kind of what Kyle's at, what Kyle's at, and, and I think that if I could just at least get to where he's at, then for me that's that's going to be plenty good enough for, for years to come. Hey, when you say Kyle, tell the viewers at home who you're talking about. Okay, Kyle Berkshire. He's the longest driver in, yeah. in history. Correct. I mean, he, he did things that he's done things with his body, uh, albeit, you know, I I've have a couple pounds on him and whatnot. He is way faster than me, mm. and it's it's interesting to have somebody to look look up to in that regard to try and get, keep getting faster, rather than, oh, you know, I'm already the you know I'm one of the fastest on tour and I'm good with that. No, I want to be kind of where, where Kyle's at, and you know me, I like pushing barriers, and it's fun to see where you can what you can do with the human body. Keeps up in the ante. I love him, uh, and uh, yeah, just to put it into context, so 211 mile an hour ball speed. Um, that is significantly faster than PGA Tour average. PGA Tour average is about a, it's between 165 and 170. Now, someone like Rory McIlroy, this is with a driver. Rory McIlroy, who's a big hitter, would be up between 180 and maybe even 190 if you really got one out there. Bryson's talking about 211, which is just each mile an hour is, it equates to about two to two and a half yards of distance. So, you know, 20 miles an hour 
could gain him 45, 50 yards of distance, even on some of the biggest hitters on tour. So we're talking about from guys that are hitting it. This is mainly through the air. Guys that are carrying it 300 yards through the air who are long hitters, he could be carrying it 330, 340 through the air. And obviously that is turning every single golf course he plays into a par 68. He didn't uh, deliver when the Masters was held, interestingly, on a soft course at Augusta. He got caught out. He was too aggressive. He got punished for some of the shots that he hit there. But it'll be really interesting to see if that continues because the authorities were, I think, on the brink of doing something about it. Certainly when he won at winged foot in the manner that he did, the bomb and gouge method, that was the talk of the talk. It was and it's the gonna talk. Force the, it's going to force the hand of the authorities, the governing bodies but of the game. he didn't go on and, and sweep all before No, he didn't. So I think if he wins the Masters in April by a distance, if he does something ridiculous this year, that will amp up that uh, conversation. Right now, as long as he doesn't do that, he is fascinating for the game of golf. It's not often I sit through one minute and 51 seconds of a golfer saying I missed a few birdies out there and I'll be back to do it all over again tomorrow. I am enamoured by that man. We've had a couple of times we've spoken to him. I find him incredibly engaging. It's his body at the end of the day. He is throwing out conventional wisdom on the game of golf. And I, for one, not everyone will agree for me, I think right now he is blooming great for the game. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with you. But the man who's atop the pile is none other than Dustin Johnson. He is the best golfer on the planet. Certainly, with his performances, uh, or his performance. He is the best golfer by, by, by a margin, I'd say. He's, he's definitely established himself as the clear world number one. Again, we come back to a theme a little earlier. Life depends on it. Who plays golf around the golf for you tomorrow? DJ. Uh, yeah, DJ. Right now. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about it, and you're probably right. No, he, he, well, let me, let me give you a few of his stats from, from last year. He won the Masters by five shots. Uh, that was to, just to cap an incredible run, which also saw him win the FedEx Cup and the $15 million bonus for that. He reached 20 under par. Now, I know it was held in November, different course, but still, it was a, a Masters record. In 18 tournaments last year, Johnson earned $24,385,000. Jeez. Golf TV broke down his PGA Tour earnings. He earned, in 17 events, 23900000 And they calculated that, that that basically equated to $392,000 a round, oh $21,000 per hole, and over $5,700 per stroke. Per shot. He's essentially getting paid. Every time that man strikes a golf ball on the course, he's getting paid $5,700. Yeah. Um, he actually only, he only completed 15 tournaments. He missed two cuts and he withdrew from a third event from injury. So he only completed 15 events and he managed to win. Now, the large bulk of that was the FedEx Cup winfall that he won, $15 million. Um, but he actually won four times last year, including the Masters and the Tour Championship. And he's won 24 times on the PGA Tour. Half of those wins have come in the last four seasons since the start of 2017. So, for me, he's the clear number one. I'm sorry, but Rory McIlroy has not been at the races in the majors. He's not really won that much lately, Rory McIlroy. So, for me, he's, he'd always be the, the golfer that I would say is the most talented of this generation. But He needs to back it up. He, just, he hasn't mentally. Um, he just There seems to be an air about him that he's kind of happy with where he's at and there's no... Yeah, I mean, there's no drive. There's no. There's no. We said it before. Know, I think the greats, the greats need to win, and Rory's never struck me as someone who needs to win, and, and that is testament to his character. 
He's a very, he appears to be, and this is all conjecture. I couldn't, you know, we'd need to have Rory in studio to speak for himself, and I'm sure he'd disagree with us, but he appears to me to be someone who's content with what, what he's achieved yeah. in the game and that there isn't this imperative, there isn't this hunger, this need to, to win more, to win more majors. Yeah, and I think he's, he's, he's almost said as much. There is more outside of his you know, life more than, than golf. You know, there is more to, to what he is into. You know, he's, got a, he, he's obviously a father now, big UFC fan, big football fan. He, you know, he loves America. He's over there now. Golf isn't the be-all and end-all. No, exactly. And, and I think, whereas with Dustin, it appears that he's finally harnessed this outrageous, prodigious talent that he's got with a bit more steel, a bit more mental toughness. Maturity, Rob. And, yeah, I think I he's think now... Maturity. He's grown into... I think he now genuinely believes he's the best. Whereas I, I'm probably... But reluctant. Yeah, he was one of those people that was, was a little bit... Uh, shrug of the shoulders. Shrug and... of the shoulders, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, we've had the pleasure of uh, catching up with DJ and we can tell you ultimately that he was a shrug of the shoulders now, kind of guy. Now, I was chatting to a former... I'm not going to name him. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, he's going to he's going Quite. to have some anonymity. But I was chatting to a former European tour player, and he said an interesting thing, which I completely agree with. He said, "Rory's a showman. He's a natural-born showman. If he's not winning by seven, he's not really interested." Yeah. When was the last time you yeah. saw him? When was the last time you saw him gut out a win by one shot? I can't remember. I honestly can't remember. It's like if he's usually not when he wins, panache and style. Yeah, when he, when he wins, he does it by a handful, and he does it in style. Mm. He does it with a final round 63 or he does it with some outrageous. And, and that's great. Don't get me wrong. This isn't in many ways. It's not really a criticism. It's just it's just an observation that he doesn't often go into the well mm. on a final round. And this is a former European, former tour, European tour player who will remain anonymous because he didn't give me permission to share that piece of information. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's move on now to talk Ryder Cup. Will DJ be an asset in the Ryder Cup. Can he be a team player or, like Tiger, a great individual? I think DJ's got a really good Ryder Cup record, if memory serves me correctly. He does have a good record. Yeah, I think he does have a really good record in the Ryder Cup. And again, we were getting, I say we, getting nerdy. Robbie was getting nerdy. It's quite frightening, the strength and depth that the Americans have. I know I appreciate, what are we? Still 10 months away, nine months away. Well, yeah, if you compare the American team, and it's always the case that the Americans appear stronger on paper. Even I think in Paris they did when they were beaten very, very comfortably in the end by the, the Europeans. But you look at DJ, they've got Justin Thomas, Bryson DeChambeau, US Open champion, Brooks Kepka, four-time major winner, Xander Schauffele, who's never out of the top 10 in majors, Webb Simpson, who's had an amazing 2020, Tony Finau, who's incredibly consistent in majors again, Patrick Reed, who should have really won the race to Dubai and is a former Masters champion. Matt Wolf's the next bright thing, who's 22 years of Where's age. Patrick Cantley. Patrick Cantley's hovering on the bubble. So they look like, that's not even to say that Mickelson and Woods might not just eke their way in in some capacity, or maybe they'll be uh, assistant captains or, or, or part of the backroom staff, but they've got a really, really strong team on home soil. And just looking at the European team, too many of them right now, if, as things stand, for me, are out of form. John Rahm is, is their leading light, probably. He's the best player, probably, on the European team, certainly in form. Uh, Tom, Tommy Fleetwood, Rahm, McElroy, three great players, no Big doubt. Names, yeah. But then Victor Perez, Tyrrell Hatton, Danny Willett, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Lee Westwood and Bernd Wiesberger. Personally speaking, again, and this is not to say where's that Stenson, things won't change. Where's Rose? Where's Casey? Henrik Stenson's on the bubble. 
Casey is is not on the bubble. The Rose. bubble is actually Marcus Kinholt, Matthias Schwab and Graham McDowell. Now, Shame. this is also down to the fact that the schedule of the European Tour was so badly affected by the pandemic last does year. does it get frozen? So what are we looking for for the next nine months? Does that stay the way that it is and over the next nine months? As far as I'm aware, no, it evolves. The qualification process will essentially be as it would be normally in, a twen- in, in the year had it been taking place okay. last year. They froze it, now it's back up and running. Okay. So Podrick Harrington has three captain's picks. And then you've obviously got the likes of Sergio Garcia, you know, Sergio, yes. Francesco Molinari's not there in the picture. Casey, Rose and Stenson. That's huge. Justin five. Rose. Yeah, it's huge, huge names that are, that are not there right now. And, and they may play themselves so, back yeah. into contention. They're obviously brilliant players. But look, right now, just as an, an observer, you'd say the US would be the big favourite right now. Right now, looking at that, yes, but as we all know, but Ryder Cups are not won on paper. Absolutely. And often the European team have, have been underdogs on paper and they've completely flipped the script and they've ended up being dominant winners. R- remind me, who's US's captain? Is it Jim Furyk? It's, uh, no, Steve Stricker's the Steve captain. Stricker, yes, time around. Steve Stricker versus Podrig Harrington. And, of course, let's not forget him and potentially a wildcard pick. Often it's uh, a bit of a cliche, but he doesn't need to be in any particular form to be an asset to the European team. But Absolutely a not. lot of those European players are getting towards the end of their careers, you know? Yeah. The real heyday of that team. That If you think of Justin Rose, Sergio Garcia, Henrik Stenson, Lee Westwood, Lee Westwood you'd probably say that... 2010, 2006 to 8, 10 was maybe... Yeah the real heyday of that side. I hear you on that front. And or even 2014 at Glen Eagles. What are when the they... young stars coming through then? Who are the ones that we should be... Looking at that list, you've got Matthias Schwab, you've got Marcus Kinholt, you've got, I mean, Tyrrell Hatton's been on Ryder Cup yeah. teams, Matt Fitzpatrick is a youngster, but he's not by any means a rookie when it comes to the Ryder Cup. Victor Perez has had a fantastic year on the European Tour, so it's, uh, there'll be some rookies, there always are. Yeah. But um, we shall see. Long Tom, way to go. Thomas, long, long the, way to Thomas go. Thomas Peters, Rob, he, he's one that flummoxes me a little bit. I watched him uh, the Golf in Dubai Championship up at the Fire Course. Obviously, I was uh, hunkering down. I was doing it across the weekend. It was the it was over the long weekend, wasn't it? Uh, the UE National Day weekend. W- watching him, there's a man who three, four, four years ago tipped for the very top. Middle of the road, well, no? eight years ago, if you think about it. Eight because I remember, I think. Um, I think he might have been playing with Lee Westwood in uh, in the 2012 Ryder Cup at Medina. He made, I think, 10 birdies in one round. And everyone was saying, this guy yeah. is unbelievable. And look, I mean, taking nothing away, he's made a good living and I'm sure he's got a lot of money in the bank, but there's a player who hasn't kicked on. I'm thinking of Andrew Colsarts. I'm not thinking of Thomas Peters at all. I've confused myself there. 2016 Nicholas, is the Ryder Cup Nicholas that he Colsarts. broke through. So you're, you're absolutely right. 2016. So, yeah, you're, four, absolutely, you're absolutely four, right. Four years, four and a bit years. Yeah, four and a bit years. And, yeah, it happens in golf, doesn't it? Jordan Spieth could have won, could have won all four majors in 2015. I'm not even talking about him in that Ryder Cup list. He's not nowhere to be seen. That's, that's insane. It's insane. It's maddening. Uh, let's talk Tiger just very briefly in terms of 2021. I, I think he will break an all-time record this year. You do. You, you will get that X to usurp Sam's need. I think he'd be so motivated to do it. And Heck of a there's a lot of courses that are on the schedule this year that he's had great results at, obviously. He's had great results at most of them. But, uh, you know, whether he wins a major or not is obviously a different kettle of fish. But there are, Torrey Pines is always a, a good course for Tiger. Bay Hill, Muirfield Village, 
Um, you've got East Lake where he's won before as part of the FedEx Cup playoffs. That's where the Tour Championship is held. Um, you know, he could maybe pop up in a major if he if he manages to get healthy and just manages to peak for the right time. Let, but let me ask you this, Rob. Uh, again, it's just a bit of speculation as we look ahead to the year. Tiger or Roger? Who'd be your money on to win? Oh, uh, Roger. Really? Probably, yeah, because I think Roger has an easier task to win, say, a Wimbledon. I don't think that's that. I mean, if Roger's fit and healthy, he could breeze through those first four rounds. If he gets a kind draw, and if someone, if fate helps him out by removing a Djokovic or removing another danger to him, I could see him winning another Wimbledon. Mm. Whereas it's, it's just for Tiger to win another major, the stars really have to align. And it was amazing in 2019. It's, obviously, it would be silly of us to, to write him off and to say he can't do it because. He obviously can, but he did just turn 45, and it, it doesn't get any easier. No, no. Jack, Jack won I mean, his final Masters at 46, yeah, so that would kind of... 1986, right? 1986, that would sort of... Uh, yeah, that would um, that would be a tall order. But, you know, let's see. Let's see it's what kind of physical shape he's getting in. To. I'm looking forward to it as well. And then, of course, just behind the scenes, the, uh, the story of the Premier Golf League is still not going away. In fact, there was a, a piece in The Guardian last month, uh, as recently as last month, which said that key figures behind the, the Premier Golf League, which is this breakaway concept. Kind of, it's a great um, idea. It's a great idea, but to me, there's just too many hurdles yeah. in front of it. They're pressing ahead with plans for a series of events on both sides of the Atlantic, and that's despite this new partnership between the European and PGA Tours, which has kind of strengthened their hand. The PGA Tour, I think, has been very clever in just kind of reinforcing yes. Its, yes. its position there. Um, and the PJ Tour has been adamant that the Premier Golf League, which is this sort of F1-type concept involving franchises and teams, it must not have any impact on the membership of the Tour. Jay Monaghan, who uh, is the, the Chief Commissioner of the PGA Tour, he basically has come out straight away to say that anyone who is a PGA Tour member cannot be a member of both. No real surprise, but it's not going away anywhere, right? They're still hell-bent on the Premier League coming to golf That's and it. it is it's a great it would be a great addition if they could make it work somehow and uh, listen again it's still there it's in the background they're biding their time they're not going anywhere the money appears to be there the three players that were most closely linked with it Mickelson surprise surprise mm-hmm. not surprising at all Adam Scott and Henrik Stenson funnily enough veterans really all guys above the age of 40 yeah. Rory McIlroy very quickly denounced it and, um, and that was a real blow to it when it first sort of was gathering a little bit of momentum. Saudi Arabia are a big backer of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the suspicion is that Phil Mickelson, who he likes to see himself as a bit of a trailblazer, as someone who's a bit alternative, he's achieved all there is to achieve on the PGA Tour. And this is him, he might of- be the first one to cash in and jump ship. He's obviously now playing Champions Tour yeah, golf, having legacy, turned 50. Yeah, legacy and it might be something for him that he goes, you know what, this would be... Uh, yeah, but there we go. We'll wait and see. But lots of interesting little narrative strands to come out of the world of golf in 2021. Once again, like many other sports, packed schedule, Ryder Cup, which is always exciting. So, um, so yeah, yeah we can't need wait. to roll on April. Roll Masters, on April. Yeah. Roll on the Masters and, and many more events between now and then here in the Middle East as well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Extra Time Podcast. With myself, Chris McCarty, and Robbie Greenfield. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do give us a review. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com.
or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts. <laughs>